Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker talks from the 2019 East End Conference held in the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the East End of London on the 5th and 6th of October 2019. The eighth and final speaker at this year's conference is Richard Jones. Richard is the owner of Jack the Ripper Tours and the author of over 20 books covering subjects such as Charles Dickens, Historic London, Myths and Legends and Haunted Britain. He has appeared many times on television and is the author of two books on Jack the Ripper, Uncovering Jack the Ripper's London and Jack the Ripper, The Casebook. Richard is also the mastermind behind the documentary Unmasking Jack the Ripper. His talk is entitled Michael Ostrog, The Fashionable Rogue. I won't start now. <laughs> Our final speaker of the 2018 East End Conference. Nineteen. You're all attend. I just did that to make sure you're all awake. Um, it's very strange to me to stand up here and have to introduce this man because I think everyone in the Ripper world knows who he is. Owner of the Jack the Ripper tours, Richard Jones conducted his first guided walking tour around London in June 1982 when Mitre Square didn't look like a garden centre. And since then has built up a solid reputation for devising and operating creative tours that offer quality and reliability in equal measure. Richard is also the author of over 20 books covering such subjects such as Charles Dickens, Historic London, Myths and Legends, and Haunted Britain. He has appeared many times on television and is the author of two books on Jack the Ripper, <coughs> Uncovering Jack the Ripper's London and Jack the Ripper, The Casebook. Richard is also the mastermind behind the documentary Unmasking Jack the Ripper. He knows a lot about Jack the Ripper, That's <laughs> pretty much what I'm saying here. Richard's talk today is about uh, the third name on the original suspect list of Michael Ostrog. Um, the man who stole tankards and then killed people. So I think he's one of the most strangest names that they could ever put on any suspect list, and I know absolutely nothing about him, so I'm really looking forward to this talk. Please welcome Richard Jones. Uh, well, thank you very much, and good afternoon, everybody, and thank you, Carl, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, what a fantastic MC. Much better than a bog and basement specimen like that. Uh, can I just say, as, as I just start, uh, can everybody hear me all right? Is everyone okay? Uh, can I just say, uh, <coughs> about six weeks ago, I had that dreaded appointment with the optician, uh, and I was told I needed reading glasses. And, well, you know, uh, I discovered, actually, I don't need reading glasses. I just need larger font. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but anyway, about two weeks ago, I got a phone call from Adam asking me for a favour. Uh, he said that at the end of the conference, he would have to clear the room really quickly. So, would I mind being the last speaker? Uh, and thus, I appear before you today as counsel for Michael Osdrog, the fashionable rogue. Now, the facts I'm about to give you are an abridged version of all the facts I have about Michael Osdrog. Uh, in fact, the full information will be appearing in my forthcoming book, The One. Um, <laughs> but Michael Ostrom, for those of you who don't know, is a major suspect. He was a barrister, turned teacher, turned publican, turned hairdresser, turned tailor, turned sailor, turned doctor, turned butcher, turned slaughterman. 
His body was found floating in the River Thames uh, off Chiswick on the last day of December, <laughs> 1888. Uh, fished from the water, he was found to be wearing a 50-foot-long shawl that was stained with blood and semen. Uh, it, it was then discovered that he had poisoned several wives, had been arrested by the police, had been released on bail, skipped bail, gone to America, grown enormous moustache, become a quack herb doctor. Oh, and he was also a member of the royal family and a Freemason. <laughs> has, has that got your attention? <laughs> My, oh, yeah, I do. Michael Osdrog was a nasty piece of work. Of that, there is no doubt whatsoever. Um, so who was Michael Osdrog? Well, Michael Osdrog was... Oh, wrong one. Michael Osdrog was Max Grief Gosler. Max Sobieski. Count Sobieski. Nuth Aston. Matthias Ostrognus. I could do an entire hour just reeling off <laughs> Michael Ostrog's aliases. Ashley Bertrand. <coughs> Ashley Nabokov. Bertrand Ashley. Count Ostrogo. Claude Clayton. Dr. Cooper. Dr. Grant. Henry Ray. Charles McCarthy. Click to add. Oh. <laughs> however, however, there is one alias that I'm almost certain that Michael Osdrog wasn't, and that was Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Michael Osdrog was a career criminal who used so many aliases that tracking him through the 19th century records is, to say the least, something of an onerous, albeit intriguing, task. His year of birth was at some stage between 1831 and 1841. His age at one of his criminal trials in 1865, for example, was given as 24, which would make the year of his birth 1841. Whereas at a later trial in 1887, his age was given as 50, which would make the year of his birth 1837. Whilst at the trial in 1894, his age is given as 63, which would make the year of his birth 1831. His nationality is also difficult to establish, since at various times in his life he claimed to be Russian, German, Polish, French and Swedish. One newspaper described Osdrog as having a clever head, a good education and polished manners, and observed that he would be certain to succeed in almost any honest life to which he might devote himself, but who, nevertheless, is an inveterate criminal. In fact, Michael Osdrog is almost unique amongst the Jack the Ripper suspects in that we have an almost continuous biography of his escapades in the Victorian newspapers. Swindling, petty larceny, fraud, forgery and obtaining goods under false pretenses were the types of criminality that Michael Osdrog, or whichever alias he happened to be using at the time, involved himself in. However, the one thing that stands out in a long and illustrious criminal career is that he appears to have demonstrated an incredible ineptitude in his chosen vocation and was almost always caught whenever he committed one of his many crimes. In fact, so incompetent was he as a criminal that if he had been Jack the Ripper, he would almost certainly have been caught after the first murder. <laughs> so why is he a suspect? Well, the earliest surviving record that I can find of Michael Osdrug, and sorry, this is a bit blurry here, but the earliest mention that, in a way, uh, possibly links him uh, to the Jack the Ripper or the Whitechapel murders, is this quote, that, or this article, from the Staffordshire Advertiser, which appeared on the 24th of September, 1892. Now, the article was, in fact, paying tribute to Benjamin Thomas Oswell, who was the Deputy Chief Constable of Staffordshire Constabulary, who had just resigned from his post. 
Oswald had arrested Osbrook in 1873, and the article mentioned, or the article here reads, that in October 1873, he arrested the notorious criminal Count Orloff, alias M. Osdrog, a well-known daring Pole of good birth and education, but a reckless thief and burglar who was wanted for offences at Windsor and Eton College and the barracks at Woolwich. This man never hesitated to use his revolver to resist arrest, but Oswald was too quick for him and caught him in a room at the Fox and Goose, Burton-on-Trent. Orloff got ten years and since then has been leading a life of crime and indeed was suspected of the serious crimes on the East End. Now, this is in 1892. So, uh, obviously, we, we've got uh, no real proof that the serious crimes on the East End being referred to in this article are, in fact, the Jack the Ripper crimes. But it's intriguing that he is linked in 1892 to uh, the, those crimes. So, even if that wasn't, the main reason that Osdrog is uh, a suspect is thanks to this man here, Melville <coughs> McNaughton. Uh, he names him on his list of three suspects that he compiled in 1894. McNaughton tells us that Osdrog was a mad Russian doctor and a convict and unquestionably a homicidal maniac. This man was said to have been habitually cruel to women and for a long time was known to have carried about with him surgical knives and other instruments. His antecedents were the very worst and his whereabouts at the time of the Whitechapel murders could never be satisfactorily accounted for. Based on what McNaughton has to say about Osdrog's antecedents, he does seem to be a promising contender for the mantle of having been Jack the Ripper. However, it should also be remembered that in McNaughton's musings, not just on the Whitechapel murders, but on other crimes as well, there are almost certainly inaccuracies. And with regards to Michael Osdrog, McNaughton is wrong in one important respect. As I mentioned earlier, we have a detailed timeline of Osdrog's criminal activity from the 1860s to the 1890s, and by no stretch of the imagination, at least from the accounts we have of him, could he be described as ever having been homicidal. Indeed, the only times he appears to have resorted to violence were when he endeavoured to either evade capture or to escape from custody once he had been captured. Aside from those occasions, Osdrog does not appear to have been the type of man, man sorry, who could uh, uh, eviscerate five women in the dead of night on the streets of the East End of London. So in order to gain an insight into what type of criminal Osdrog was, and to therefore assess his viability as a suspect, it is useful to trace his c criminal career from the earliest mentions in the newspapers up until the period of the Whitechapel murders. Thankfully, the Victorian newspapers appear to have seen Osdrog as a newsworthy subject, or as one paper put it, a fashionable rogue. And in consequence, we can follow his life in crime in the pages of a surprising number and variety of newspapers. So let us begin our journey through the life and crimes of Michael Osrock. Well, he first appeared in the crime pages of the newspapers in early 1863, when he was sentenced under one of his many aliases to 10 months hard labour for stealing several articles from Oxford colleges. <coughs> the Bucks Chronicle covered the story on Saturday, the 28th of February, 1863. Just uh, let me get his photograph up there. I'll, so I'll, ha I'll have him on the screen as I talk about him. But the article read... The gentleman, who refused his name, but which has been discovered to be Max Grief Gosler, later student at Heidelberg, charged with robberies at Oxford, has been committed for trial. The Oxford Times, on Saturday the 7th of March, 1863, reported on the outcome of the case. 
Max Grief Gosler, otherwise Max Kiff Gosler, aged 27, a German student, was charged with stealing a dressing case, frock coat, riding coat, and other articles at New College on the 15th of February last, the property of the Reverend G.F. Price. The prisoner was also charged with stealing an opera glass and case at Oriel College in the month of February 1863, the property of Mr. Charles Levi. To this charge, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 10 months hard <coughs> labour. So off he goes into prison. Upon his release, he appears to have been determined to show, uh, not to show favouritism to a particular seat of learning, and he turned his attention to Cambridge, uh, <laughs> stopping off en route at Bishop Stalford. The Chelmsford Chronicle carried the story of his fresh escapades on Friday the 12th of February, 1864, and it's worth quoting this article in full largely because it will use up most of my time. <laughs> it's use uh, quoting this article in full, as it gives us an intriguing insight into Osgood's criminal methods, personality and character. About 12 months since, it will be remembered, several very mysterious robberies occurred at Oxford University. Watches, purses, coats, with every other conceivable portable article alike, disappearing from chapel, college rooms, and even from the dining hall, which led to the employment of detectives and thus to the apprehension of a German student, Max Grief Gosler, a young fellow of good family connection. The evidence given on the trial at the Borough Quarter Session of that town was so conclusive and so many cases were reduced against the culprit that the plea, that's quite important, the plea of kleptomania failed and Gosler was sentenced to 10 months imprisonment. This term therefore expired about four weeks since when Gosler's attention seems to have turned to the other seat of learning but on the way he took the opportunity of introducing himself to a respectable tradesman at Bishop Storford as, as the son of a fallen <coughs> Polish nobleman and himself a personage no less than Count Sobieski, who had made his escape from Warsaw after being sentenced, like his parent, to end his days at Siberia, and that he was then travelling to Cambridge to meet some countrymen who were pursuing their studies at the university. He required hotel accommodation. Not grand, he remarked, as his means were limited, but they must be cleanly. And at the same time, he displayed all the money which he said he possessed, one shilling and eightpence. The tradesman was at once gold. He left his business personally to introduce the Polish count to the keeper of the adjoining hostelry. The Count Sobieski's plausible manner and pitiable tale also at once touched the sympathies of mine host of the coach and horses, and all the house was afforded. The choices fair, solids and fluids, with the best spare bed, fell to the lot of the unfortunate exile. With the following day... Nothing to pay, a hearty shake of the hand and a piece of gold left in the palm to help him on the road to classic ground. The Count was not ungrateful, so he turned his thoughts to the tradesman, his first acquaintance, to thank him and also to make known the generosity of his later, late entertainer. However, in this shop at the time were two professional gentlemen with whom somehow or other the Count got into conversation, which ended by his being requested to become the guest of one of them. Of course, the exile somewhat desired to meet his dear friends at Cambridge, but notwithstanding this obstacle, he consented. His melancholy story, well-bred and amiable manners, again made a friend in the mistress, as well as the master, and he became the star of the house for four days, when he reluctantly tore himself away, but not without taking further opportunity, of adding to his obligations by the loan of two or three little sovereigns, the gentleman obligingly going to the railway station at his request to procure a first-class ticket for Cambridge, the Count fearing he could not make the man understand at the station.' 
At Cambridge, he was not long before he found another dupe in the person of a gentleman named Draper at Magdalen College, and after this had been effected, he again thought of his friends at Bishop Storford, to whom he returned on the following day and remained with them until Monday, going on the and this is one of my favourite parts, going on the Sunday to church where he was informed a collection would be made for repairing the building. And wishing to be a contributor, he borrowed one piece of silver from his friend for the purpose of being a charitable Christian. <laughs> on Tuesday, the Count had again to visit his old and dear friend, Mr Draper, at Cambridge. But that gentleman had had, had some suspicion of Count Sobieski during his absence at Stortford and had therefore consulted Superintendent Turrell, who somehow imagined he had knowledge of the exile and accordingly awaited his arrival on the 5.30 train, when in Count Sobieski he discovered the Oxford University thief. The next morning he was taken before Cambridge Borough Magistrates at the Town Hall on the charge of defrauding Mr Draper and after evidence had been given by that gentleman and others, the poor Count was sent to the House of Correction for three months and hard labour as a rogue and a vagabond. On being asked if he had anything to say to the charge, he made a long speech, the greater part of which was inaudible, on his distress and the ingratitude of his fellow creatures and concluded by asking the question, what was he to do? The deputy mayor told him that he was a dangerous man to be at large and that he would effectually be taken care of for the next three months. By this plausible tale, he had then succeeded in imposing upon several gentlemen and he would therefore be sent to jail for three months. On hearing the sentence, the defendant begged to be remanded for von Wieck, but he was ordered to be removed from the dock. So off he goes on another term in prison. But then in July 1864, he turned up in Tunbridge Wells in Kent, where he passed himself off once more as Count Sobieski, under which grand title he was able to make the acquaintance of several respectable and very wealthy citizens, many of whom he swindled. In December 1864, he decamped to Exeter, where he was once again up to his old tricks, as the following report, which appeared in the Glasgow Herald on the 27th of December, detailed. The last of the Sobieskis in trouble. At Torquay Police Court on Wednesday last, Matthias Ostragos was committed for trial on a charge of obtaining three pound and a five franc piece on false pretenses from the Reverend Canon Widea, Roman Catholic priest. The prisoner has been in town for a month, passing himself off as Count Ostrago, and also as John Sobieski, the last of that noble line, and under a very variety of pretenses, had managed to defraud very many persons. Amongst others, he ingratiated himself into favour with the priest to whom he declared himself to be a gentleman. The priest aided him with his advice and frequently gave him a good dinner. At one of these dinners, the Count said that the beer did not agree with him, and accordingly the priest drew out a bottle of claret for the delectation of his distinguished guest. The said guest smacked his lips over the claret, extolled the canon for his hospitality, and said he expected a handsome present of wine from his friends abroad in a few days, of which he would give his entertainer half a dozen bottles, provided he would send for them. In a few days, having heard that the wine had arrived, the canon sent a trusty messenger for his promised gift, and half a dozen of the famous claret was soon stored away beneath the hospitable roof of the presbytery. And then another classic Osdrog. It was afterwards discovered that this wine had been obtained not from the Count's friends abroad, but from Mr. G's wine office. Uh, Then the Count spoke of his difficulties and hinted plainly that money would be very appreciated. 
The canon, however, could not see the hint, so on Monday the 19th, the Count asked for money, point blank, saying that he had cigars to the value of £70 or £80 in Tainmouth Custom House, and the duty amounted to £20 and a few odd shillings. <coughs> Towards this he had £17. Would the kind-hearted canon lend him just enough to make up the balance, which he swore solemnly should be paid the next day? After much pressing, the canon advanced £3 and a five-franc piece, understanding that the cigars were at the custom house and that the money would be repaid on Tuesday. When eased of his money, the canon thought he had not been over-discreet, and after making a few inquiries, he found that there were no cigars belonging to the Count at Tynemouth, and that the fellow had been practising up on the people in the town rather extensively. The canon tried repeatedly to see the Count, but failed to do so. At length, on Monday night, the canon took a policeman with him to the Count's lodgings, and after climbing up internal flights of stairs, came to the topmost room of all, which served alike as bed and dressing room for the Count. A summons to surrender was unheeded. At length, the policeman put his knee to the lock and forced it open, and there was the Count in an interesting condition, much astonished at such, singularly, at such a singularly inappropriate visit. A demand was made for payment. The Count declared that the money was not due until Tuesday, said it was a debt, and that it would have to be recovered through the county court. This sort of talk did not suit the Reverend Gentleman, and at his, and at his desire, the Count was locked up. These facts having been proved in evidence, the Count was committed for trial. The prison was also committed for stealing a silver-plated pint cup from the London Hotel. The cup had been missing, missed from the sideboard in the hotel after one of the Count's visits and was found beneath his bed after he was taken into custody. He was then sentenced to eight months' imprisonment with hard labour. So, off he goes to prison once more. But on Saturday, the 16th of September, 1865, Oswald was freed from prison, and several local newspapers deemed it necessary to warn tradesmen that he was once more at liberty and likely to start taking liberties. The following such warning appeared in the Taunton Courier on Wednesday, the 20th of September, 1865. Caution to the public. It may be of service to tradesmen, especially to innkeepers, to caution them against the man who represents himself to be a noble Polish refugee and who last Saturday was liberated from the county jail where he had undergone an imprisonment of nine months for obtaining money by false pretenses and stealing plate at Torquay where he assumed the title Count Sobieski. The same individual was sentenced in Cambridge to three months' imprisonment as a rogue and vagabond. He is said to have already commenced his malpractices and to have victimised several innkeepers of Exeter. On Friday, August the 3rd, 1866, Osdrog found himself in court again, this time in Maidstone in Kent, where, under his alias of Ashley Bertrand, he was tried for three counts of theft. This account of it comes from the Dundee Advertiser of Monday the 6th of August. Extraordinary career of a sham count. At Maidstone Assizes on Friday, Ashley Bertrand, alias Ashley Nobokov, alias Count Sobieski, and who has also gone by several other aliases, was charged with stealing a gold cross, the property of Thomas White. He was also charged with stealing a gold watch, the property of Esther Carpenter, and there was a third indictment against him for stealing property from the Globe Hotel at Chatham. The career of the prisoner appears to have been a most extraordinary one, and the facts disclosed in the course of the inquiry left no doubt that he was a most accomplished swindler. Having given details of his Oxford and Cambridge robberies, the paper then went on to detail how, and again, this is, uh, this is one of my favourite parts about him, he made his appearance at Tunbridge Wells, where he represented himself as Count Sobieski, a son of the late King of Poland, and that he had been exiled on account of his political opinions by the Russian government. 
His appearance was very much in his favour, being young and tall, and his expression of melancholy and the recital he made of his supposed wrongs and sufferings in the case of his country, in the cause of his country, procured him a great deal of sympathy. And this is the bit that I, I think we really get Ostrog coming through on this one. It was his custom to walk on the parade and to get the parade band to play the national, uh, the Polish national anthem. And he would walk about as though absorbed in his melancholy reflections. The consequence of these proceedings was that he ingratiated himself into the confidence of a good many respectable persons, from whom he succeeded in obtaining money and property, and he also appears to have ingratiated himself very much with several young ladies. He professed to live by money transmitted to him from his Polish estates by his agents in that country, but the results showed that he got his living by swindling and fraud, and after a long visit to Tunbridge Wells, he suddenly decamped, having victimised almost everyone that, he came in the, that came in his way. He then seemed to have made his way to Chatham, where he succeeded in inducing Dr Lawrence, a medical gentleman of great respectability, to whom he had introduced himself as a Polish exile, to take an interest in him, and this gentleman introduced him to several respectable persons with whom he was acquainted, among, them, among whom was Mr White, a gentleman connected with the military staff at Chatham, and he constantly visited the latter and was treated by him with great kindness. At this time, the prisoner was staying at the Globe Hotel, Chatham, and it appeared that, previously to going to that place, he had formed an acquaintance with a female who turned out to be a married woman, who had made an appointment to meet him at Rochester, and they went to the Bull, Bull Hotel at that place. It was noticed that they had not brought any luggage, and the prisoner was asked if he had any, and he then sent a porter to the Globe for his portmanteau. The lady left the Bull Hotel the following day, but the prisoner stayed at the hotel a day or two longer, when he also decamped, and on his portmanteau being examined, it was found to contain nothing but a shirt, a collar, and some other trifling articles, together with some property that he had stolen from the Globe. <laughs> uh, the lady, it appeared, subsequently paid the hotel bill at the Bull, and a day or two afterwards, the prisoner was apprehended by Mr Everett, the superintendent of the county constabulary. As he was being conveyed to the police station, however, he succeeded in getting away and was not captured until a long chase, and he then made a most desperate resistance, and it was found necessary to strap him down on a stretcher before he could be conveyed to the police station. The jury, having returned a verdict of guilty, three previous convictions for felony were formally proved against the prisoner, under which he appeared to have been sentenced to different periods of imprisonment with hard labour. The prisoner was shortly afterwards brought up for judgment, and Baron Channel felt it his duty to sentence him to penal servitude for seven years. So, if you notice, the, uh, the, the, the prison imprisonments are increasing. But having served his uh, term in prison, Osgrove was freed from prison and headed for Windsor, where it wasn't long before he had returned to his criminal activities, this time robbing a schoolmaster at Eton College. Now, the Reading Observer published the following article about it, which was headlined, A Fashionable Rogue. The fashionable rogue, M. Ostrog, the Russian Pole who has been committing a series of robberies and a considerable amount of swindling in Windsor and Eton, was liberated from the convict prison at Chatham toward the end of May last. Almost immediately afterwards, he proceeded to the Royal Borough and put up at the South Western Railway Hotel, where he remained about three months. Unsuspected by his confiding host, M. Ostrog made this hotel the base of his, of his operations for fleecing his victims. Speaking four or five languages, he was never at a loss for an invitation to dinner, and on one occasion he dined with the officers of the second lifeguards of the Spittle Cavalry Barracks. A small silver clock has been missing from there since his visit. <laughs> 
someone in the course of a conversation at the barracks having remarked that M. Ostrog resembled a distinguished officer in the blues, the Pole made an excursion to the Regent's Park barracks and palmed himself off as an intimate friend of the officer in question. Windsor and Eaton having apparently become too warm for the comfort of this gentleman, he transferred his residence to West Drayton, taking lodgings at the Trout Inn. Here he was accustomed to take his meals with a loaded revolver lying upon the table in front of him and occasionally boasted of having killed several people in duels. At West Drayton he stayed about three weeks and amused himself during that time by courting a young lady in the vicinity. Disturbed by the inquiries made at Windsor by her friends, Osrob went to London and... And remember, by this time, he's wanted for those crimes in uh, Windsor and Eaton. Uh, but he, t- he was trapped by the local police, uh, by the Windsor police, to a house in Osmorough Street, Regent's Park. But he managed to escape by breaking open a trap door in the roof, entering the next residence, rushing downstairs and out of the street door to the alarm of the occupiers of the other house. After this extraordinary es- escapade, the coolness exhibited by Osdrog was something remarkable. Pursued by the police for a robbery at Eaton College, he returned there and was seen and spoken to by several people, and he actually asked if the missing property had been recovered. At that point, Osdrog disappeared, and several newspapers reported that he had fled to Russia. As it transpired, though, Osdrog had in fact headed to Burton-on-Trent, where he put up at the Fox and Goose pub. Because of descriptions of him have been circulated in the newspapers, the landlord's son contacted the local police, informing them that he believed the wanted man was a guest at their establishment. And this is where the man who I quoted earlier, uh, Superintendent Oswald, turns up. Uh, on the afternoon of Sunday the 5th of October, Mr B.T. Oswald, superintendent of the Staffordshire Constabulary, Constabulary stationed at Burton-on-Trent, arrived at the Fox and Goose in at about half past one in the afternoon. He found Osdrog seated at dinner. Oswell later terrified that he rang the bell, sat down between Osdrog and the door, and ordered some brandy. He began to read the Daily Telegraph of the previous day and entered into conversation with Osdrog about various topics. He then called two constables in plain clothes and, having taken the precaution of throwing the knives and forks off the table into a corner, he said to Osdrog, Pardon me for being so rude, but if you will read that, it will explain my business pointing at the same time to a paragraph in the Daily Telegraph that detailed the Windsor and Eaton crimes. He then informed Osdrog, I am superintendent of police and these two men are my constables. Osdrog replied, you insult me, what do you mean? Oswald then read the charge against him for obtaining books under false pretenses from Eaton near Windsor and also a silver cup from one of the colleges at Eaton. Osdrog told him that it was a mistake, claiming that he was a Swedish gentleman and he had come to Burton to see the breweries. Oswell remarked that he was a, certain he was the man and that he must go to the police station. He also warned him against trying to use firearms. Osdrog replied, I haven't got firearms. I sold my revolver yesterday. Oswell instructed him, keep your hands out of your pockets and don't try the American trick. To which Osdrog replied, I must go upstairs to dress. No, you shall not, was Oswell's reply. The servants can bring down what you want. When this had been done, Oswell searched Osdrog's clothing and then allowed him to put them on. A cab was outside, but Osdrog said he wished to walk. Oswell, however, said that he must go into the cab, at which point Osdrog became very excited, stormed, and said he would not go out of the room. The police had to use force to get him into a cab. On alighting at the police station, Osdrog tried to make his escape by making a jump as soon as he got onto the pavement, but he was instantly seized by two constables and by Oswell. He then... Obviously, Oswell hadn't done a pretty good search of his clothing because he then drew a revolver out of his right-hand pocket and turning round to Oswell, he said, I'll shoot you. 
Oswell, though, was having none of it. He seized the gun, turned it towards his prisoner, and told him to fire if he liked. <laughs> After a struggle, they got the revolver away, and they dragged him into the station. He was found guilty at his subsequent trial, at which it was stated that he was in the habit of representing himself as a surgeon in the Russian Navy. He was sentenced to 10 years penal servitude, followed by a further 10 years of police supervision. And that's an important thing to remember, the sentence to ten year, further 10 years of police supervision supervision. It becomes a bit significant later on. Uh, during this spell in prison, incidentally, he met Michael Davitt, who was serving a sentence for treason, uh, treason felony. Davitt later wrote a long passage about him in his book, Leaves from a Prison Diary, which was published in 1885. This book, incidentally, can be found on archive.org, and it's well worth reading, as Osprog once again comes across as absolutely charming uh, in uh, what, what uh, Davitt writes about him. Uh, Osrog was released from prison in August 1883 and went to Bedford, from where, in September 1883, he headed to London, after which he failed to report to the police. He next pops up in the newspapers in 1887 under the alias of Claude Clayton uh, for stealing a metal tankard from a military cadet at the Royal Academy at Woolwich. The Eastern Evening News had this to say about his latest court appearance when he was caught on the Thursday, the 11th of August, 1887. The accused, Claude Clayton, made his appearance at the Royal Military Academy in a cricket suit and being taken for an officer, went in unchallenged. He walked into the room of the gentleman cadet, Biggs, who was reclining on his bed, lame, and placed a plated tankard, which Biggs had won in the cadet athletic sports, into a Gladstone bag. Mr Biggs, being unable to secure the thief, knocked him down, and as the fellow got up and made off, he raised the alarm. Clayton was pursued across Woolwich Common by 50 cadets, <laughs> and after being chased for a mile, was caught by one of the academy athletes. On the way back, uh, Clayton swallowed some poison and had to be sent to the hospital. Superintendent Dunham of Slough Bucks identified the prisoner as one of the most desperate criminals who ever lived. He had been convicted in the names of Ostrog, Orloff and Bertrand Ashley, and he bore 30 other aliases. He was still under police supervision, but had failed to report himself. He was believed to be, uh, believed to be a Russian Pole. We, nobody really knows what nationality he was. Whilst being conveyed to Holloway Jail on the present charge, he tried to drag his jailer off the platform at Woolwich Arsenal Station in front of an approaching train. Uh, the Kent Kentish Chronicle reported on his subsequent appearance. Uh, and again, Osrog really comes across that. Only Osrog would come up with this as his uh, reason for what had happened. The prisoner, who spoke so feebly as to be scarcely intelligible, was understood to say that he had no need to have acted as he had, and he could not account for it. He was well-connected, and he had gone out in the morning to play cricket. The sun was very hot, and it affected him, having had sunstroke about a month ago. He had an irresistible inclination to run a race, and he was under the impression that he was running one when the cadets started chasing him. <laughs> <out. laughs> He asked his worship not to convict him or his diploma would be forfeited. He was the last of a family of four, three of whom had committed suicide, and his wife had been unfaithful to him, which troubled him. Mr. Wareham remanded the prison till Tuesday for the attendance of the prosecutor, uh, and also, because uh, Ostrog claimed he was fre a French doctor at this point, uh, he actually said that they should com communicate with the French consul. He then appeared at the Old Bailey on Wednesday the 14th of September 1887, when according to the Kentish Mercury, he now refused to plead and feigned insanity. Again, just remember, he feigned insanity. But a doctor from Holloway Jail and Mr Hillier, assistant to the divisional surgeon at Woolwich, both testified that he was sane. The recorder sentenced him to six months' hard labour. 
he was sent to Wandsworth Prison, from whence he was transferred on the 30th of September 1887 to the Surrey County Lunatic Asylum, suffering from mania, cause unknown. On the 10th of March 1888, he was released as recovered, and the police once again lost track of him. But since this is the period going into and covering the Whitechapel murders, I intend to end my look at his career at this point. There is a lot more to him. Uh, there's a lot more you can read about. Uh, all those things I reeled off when I did that uh, introduction about him being a barrister, a school teacher, so on and so forth. Uh, those were all things he claimed to have been during his lifetime. Uh, one or two of them, I made them up. But, <laughs> but hey, when's that ever stopped? Stopped, <laughs> stopped a book being published on Jack the Ripper. <laughs> So, on the March the 10th, 1888, he was released as recovered. But since this is the period going into the murders, uh, I've just read that, uh, as I believe this is when, uh, this is when I believe he would have come under the notice of the police uh, as possible perpetrator of the Jack the Ripper crimes. By September 1888, the police were looking into the possibility that the murderer was a recently released or escaped lunatic and was certainly paying particular notice to those who had had medical training. Osdrog's release from the asylum just a few weeks before the attack on Emma Smith, and thus the beginning of the Whitechapel murders, coupled with the work, uh, coupled with um, <laughs> I lost my page, coupled with the fact that he claimed to be a surgeon or a medical practitioner, would almost certainly have brought his name up. And of course, McNaughton is quite correct when he says that his whereabouts at the time of the murders were unknown, albeit it later transpired that he may have been, I'll say may have, may have been in a French asylum. Since the police were looking for him. Uh, not, not it appears in connection with the Jack the Ripper murders, but because he had failed to report, his name therefore appeared in the Police Gazette several times, such as the entrance that's on the, entrance that's on the screen now, where uh, this comes from the 9th of August, 1889. Michael Osdrog, alias Bertrand Ashley, Claude Clayton and Dr Grant. A Polish Jew was sentenced 5th of January, 1874 at Aylesbury to 10 years penal servitude and 7 years police supervision for larceny. Liberated on licence, 25th of August, 1883. Again sentenced at the Central Criminal Court, 14th of September, 1887, to 6 months hard labour for larceny. On 10th of March 1888, he was liberated from the Surrey County Lunatic Asylum and failed to report. Important passage here. Special attention is called to this dangerous man and inquiry requested at hospitals, infirmaries and workhouses, etc., where it is possible that some of the medical staff may be able to assist in tracing him. Warrant issued. So in this he stated as being a dangerous man. Now some commentators have pointed to the statement in this article, special attention is called to this dangerous man as being significant in his candidature for being Jack the Ripper. Personally, I believe that it was referring to the fact that he, he was a dangerous man insofar as he had resorted to violence on any occasion when he was about to be arrested or to escape from capture, or sorry, custody when he had been arrested. So in this respect, he had most certainly shown himself to be a dangerous man and would no doubt do so again if he was cornered. Which brings us to McNaughton's reasons for including his name in his 1894 memoranda. It should be remembered that McNaughton wasn't as such naming him as the murderer. In fact, it is worth quoting the reason for his Ostrog inclusion at this point. No one ever saw the Whitechapel murderer. Many homicidal maniacs were suspected, but no shadow of proof can be thrown on any one. I may mention the cases, I may mention the cases of three men, any one of whom would have been more likely than Cutbush to have committed this series of murders. So as all McNaughton appears to be saying here, uh, with this statement, is that Osdrog is one of three men who was likelier than Thomas Cutbush to have been uh, the murderer. 
But as for his having carried out the Jack River murders, well, we've explored, we've explored his criminal career, and I've read detailed accounts of his criminal activity. Those are just some of them. There are many more, and he just comes across as being the fraudster that he is, but charming, absolutely charming. Uh, but not homicidal, almost certainly not homicidal. We've read the detailed accounts of his criminal activity, and many of which his personality and character have been laid bare. I can only leave it to you to decide whether there is anything in Michael Osdrog's history, personality or character that suggests he was the type of criminal who would have carried out the Whitechapel murders. And I think, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you will have no choice but to agree that reasonable doubt most certainly exists, and you will therefore reach the only just and proper verdict that is open to you on my client's behalf, not guilty. I commend this statement to the room. Thank you very much for that. Any questions on Michael Ostrog? Good God, what a question that is. <laughs> ah, Lindsay. Oh, oh heck. <laughs> well, I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Liz. <laughs> Sorry, Lindsay. Have you contacted Oxford University Archives for their police records? The question was, have I contacted Oxford University for their police records? Yeah, well, being the dedicated researcher that I am, no. <laughs> But I will, I will, I will. I'll get back to you next year. <laughs> I think I read somewhere that he committed one of his crimes at a time when, uh, at Eton or somewhere, when McNaughton was actually there. Ah, uh, not, when, not when McNaughton was there. Uh, no. This, this is, I think, this, I think it's the A to Z uh, this one crops yeah. up in, that, uh, that he was, uh, that, that, McNaughton was playing cricket for ah, some reason yeah. at the time when uh, when he was yeah. when, he, when he was at Eaton. Uh, he, he did. I mean, the, the bits when I didn't extend, I didn't go into the eighteen nineties on Osdrog. Uh, one of the interesting things about him in the eighteen ninety four is that he gets reaccused of uh, of crimes that he committed during eighteen eighty eight and eighteen eighty nine at Eaton College, and that's. Uh, I mean, that would just make it that make it about an hour and a half long to go into all that. But uh, what was interesting about that period is that Osdrog then turns up in court. He gets arrested. He gets taken to court again. And uh, when, he's on, when he's in trial, uh, the, they're saying, the, the, the witnesses, schoolmasters, uh, reverends, even schoolboys are appearing and they're saying, well, yeah, it was him, uh, 1888. And Osdrog, <laughs> this seems to be one of the possibilities, given what Philip Sugden found out about his time in, in France. <laughs> this seems to be one of the cases when Osdrog was uh, actually telling the truth. Because uh, during this trial, he keeps interjecting, saying, it's a lie, it's a lie. I was in France. I was in an asylum in France. But nobody believed him. And uh, I'm, I'm often reminded, when I think of Osborne, I'm often reminded that I, I, there's a story about, I can't remember who it was now, but uh, somebody who actually was charged with a crime and he decided to, his lawyer advised him to uh, plead insanity. Uh, and so he pled insanity for the crime uh, and he went to an asylum as opposed to prison, which he thought was fantastic. But as it transpired, he couldn't get out of the asylum. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and he would have been released after eight years, but he ended up spending his entire life in the asylum. And that's the sort of person I think Ostrog was. Uh, Lindsay was asking beforehand what, what became of him. We honestly don't know, he, we don't know what became of him. My uh, 
possibly it is, he, he does seem, towards the end of his life, uh, throughout the 1890s, you do start to feel sorry for him because he's obviously getting desperate. Everything's catching up uh, and uh, he's starting to get desperate. So he, there's one occasion where he possibly, and again, one of the difficulties with Osdrog is that there are probably many more accounts of him in the newspapers, but we don't know it's Osdrog because he's using different aliases. And of course, he could speak, well, he could speak six languages, actually. So there's a probability that he was, uh, in, in the periods where he goes missing, he's probably in other cities around Europe and not just uh, not just in London, uh, so he did travel around. Uh, but I say he's, he's probably the mo- one of the most elusive of all the suspects, simply because of all the aliases he used. And it's almost uh, it's almost impossible to track him down. And what became of him, we honestly don't know what what, what happened to him uh, as of yet. Uh, there's talked of him doing crimes at London hospitals, stealing uh, stealing microscopes towards the end of the 1890s under the uh, uh, alias of John John Evans. I think I think he used then. But no, as I say, that's a long-winded, uh, long-winded answer to your question. I'm sorry, I don't. But, uh, uh, anyway. yeah, um, you mentioned Bishop Stortford, and uh, um, I lived in Bishop Stortford for 23 years. Um, and I can say, tell you that the coaching horses uh, is still there, <laughs> um, but considerably refurbed, as you would probably imagine. Uh, and Bishop Stortford's other claim to fame in sort of ripper circles is that George Chapman had a pub there called The Grapes uh, that he ran for about six months. Um, and whilst the Coach and Horses pub is still there, uh, the grapes isn't, uh, and it was pulled down, I think, in the 1960s, uh, and it's now a Vodafone shop. Ah, but of course, George Chapman might have been one of Michael Ostrick's sailors. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a theory there, just a theory. Ruby. <laughs> I can't quite remember, but I think Giles Brandrick shows uh, Ostrog as one piece uh, uh, as a culprit for Jack Ripper in his book, didn't he? So it was two people working together. Ah. Did, did you read his book? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I read it but some time ago. No, he did, he, I read the he cover. I took Giles actually out uh, in uh, 19... No, two thousand five, I think it was, for when he was on the One Show, and uh, they they wanted to do uh, a Jack the Ripper tour, for they were going to do a bid on Jack the Ripper, and so I took Giles. They, they got this family uh, from Belfast, uh, oddly enough. Uh, they got this uh, family from Belfast, and we went around and they filmed the whole thing. Uh, but it transpired; it, it just didn't quite work because uh, the the researchers just chose just chose a random family, and it turned out it was a mother and father and a five-year-old and a three-year-old. <laughs> and it was the most bizarre thing going around. Uh, but uh, I, I had a quite nice chat with, uh, with Giles at the end, end of that. So, uh, yeah. So, but, no, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't read his book. Sorry, Giles. <laughs> okay, anyone else? No? Well, thank you very oh, much. Thank okay. you. It's called The One. And it's coming, so it's called The One by Richard Jones. Uh, but you just have to prove if you want to purchase a copy that you're not a ripperologist. <laughs> no comment. Well, thank you very much. That concludes the talks for today and the talks for the entire conference. Uh, I'd like to thank every single one of our speakers there. They were all fantastic. And uh, as they were yesterday, I should say as well. And that was Richard Jones at the 2019 East End Conference. We would like to thank Richard Jones, Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth and Carl Kopak for making this and all of the talks from this year's conference available for our listeners. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you will find over 170 roundtable discussions, 
author interviews, conference presentations, and archive recordings all about the Whitechapel murders and East End crime and history. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast.